Hello everyone, it's January 28th, 2020. This week, we're catching back up with Spaceway One, that Boeing satellite with a damaged battery that once it falls into Earth's shadow might blow up, causing trouble for anything in geosynchronous orbit. It's a ticking time bomb, and we'll explain why, and liftoff. And we've got the tower. Welcome to episode 245 of the Overall Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So, um, actually, I know that you guys want to talk about something <laughs> at, like at the top of the show, but I want to talk about, I just want to ask one quick question. So, what do you think of the new Space Force insignia or seal? Because <laughs> that, that's been going everywhere. And I even got a text from a friend of mine saying, this can't be a coincidence. Because if you don't know, it looks surprisingly mm. like Starfleet Command, which mm-hmm. I think is awesome. Some people are denying it vociferously. And I think, why would you do that? Just say, Sure. I mean, it it is. <laughs> I mean, it sure looks like it, but yeah. I mean that that delta shape is pretty common, but that exactly. you know, yeah. adding a swoosh makes sense because it's space, and adding uh, stars in the background makes sense. But I don't know. And then there's like the planet Earth <laughs> behind it, and the swoosh is going is like at the same inclination. Like it looks the same. It's like the same swoosh in the same place. It looks. Mm-hmm. Uh, strikingly similar. Actually, no, I had read that most likely because, you know, before this, it was just called the Air Force Space Command, and that's been around for a long time. And mm-hmm. so it's more likely that the creators of the Starfleet symbol got that from the Air Force, not the other way around. So ah, it, actually, that's why they look similar. I see. Because that was the inspiration for Star Trek. So, you know, interesting bit of trivia. Yeah, it's got the, the, the same kind of chevron and everything. And just mm-hmm. two orbits in that case. So we've lost an orbit. But yeah, anyway, so I just want to just uh, mention that. But yeah, let's talk about something else. So what was the first topic? Yeah, so the other thing we want to talk about was the preliminary report from the in-flight abort test of Crew Dragon. And like I started writing up a short and sweet for it, but basically it went perfectly. <laughs> That's all we know <laughs> at this point. Um, one of the interesting things I did find uh, was being reported, though, was that um, the abort was based not on a launch timer, which is how I would have expected it to, to go, but actually on an accelerometer. Um, they wanted to hit, I think, 12, 1200 miles per hour. And so it's interesting that they picked a velocity that put them after max Q. I think we talked about that last week, um, but we were kind of speculating before we started recording about how um, the absolute velocity might be more important. And that that also might present a little bit more of a challenge because even though you don't have the maximum dynamic pressure, right, because it's high enough that the atmosphere is starting to, to thin out. And so your mm-hmm. speed is no longer adding pressure to the front of your vehicle, but that um, having that higher velocity um, as well as having a higher acceleration from a more empty first stage, more acceleration from the first stage might um, might be important. So I don't know. I guess we'll have to wait until we get more data out of it, and then we can really dig into it and talk about the the abort in detail. Yeah, but I think, like you said, the acceleration might be the key thing, and that's. I mean, that would be my guess because that seems like the most critical part of the abort or making sure that the abort works well. Mm-hmm. Dynamic pressure is important because that's a lot for that capsule to press up against, you know, that air. But mm-hmm. still, you have to get away from the first stage and that comes down to acceleration, um, but also dynamic pressure. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> hmm. it's a good point. So, uh, yeah, it, it was interesting, though. Elon uh, Elon this week did say, yeah, so, you know, we're only accelerating at, what, 3.3 Gs. But, you know, which is which is lower than most abort systems, but he's like, it's fine, because like, even if the first stage exploded, that's still enough to get away from it. You know, they confirmed that they can pressurize fast enough and yada, yada. But he also made a point of talking about how Crew Dragon does have a heat shield on the bottom. (laughs) And so Mm -hmm. even if it was, you know, sort of enveloped in a a ball of flame, they think it's going to be okay. Okay, so actual spaceflight news, huh? 
right, so first up in the actual news news, Spaceway One Battery. So what is that about? Um, We haven't talked about this in a while, I don't think, but we did, I guess, like a year or two ago uh, about the problem that Boeing was having with some of its satellites with uh, their batteries leaking or like blowing up, venting. I don't know what you'd call it, but I think it was more like exploding, right? Yeah, well, in this case, um, we have uh, FOD damage, most likely. But uh, I wanted to thank Mark Wilson on Twitter. He saw this. I- I'm pretty sure this story would have made it into the show anyway, but he tweeted at us mm-hmm. and said, hey, uh, can you make sure to include this? So this is for you, Mark. <laughs> yeah. So Spaceway One might be exploding. So this is a a DirecTV uh, geosynchronous satellite. Um, there's actually three of them, and they've been around for a while. Uh, this one in particular was launched in 2005 and had a uh, an expected lifetime of 12 years so it's uh it's definitely getting up there in in age and uh it was originally uh sea launched on a sea launch a Zenit 3SL rocket and was the heaviest commercial satellite at the time so this is a uh it's a big Boeing uh or BSS Boeing Space Systems uh 702HP a high mm-hmm. power bus and a uh a K a KA band payload. So a whole bunch of transponders on there. And so anyone that has direct TV, in particular in Alaska, then this would be the one that uh, in recent years you would be uh, communicating with. And uh, as far as the uh, explosions uh, or potential worry about the explosion goes, uh, this is a time sensitive uh, situation as we'll find out. And it is co-located with at least one other satellite, uh, another DirecTV one uh, called T10 that provides uh, high def television. And so, um, yeah, <laughs> it's not only, uh, you know, things, you know, blown up as a problem, but this other satellite might just be, you know, a handful of kilometers away. And so uh, a debris strike is very uh, real in that sense. Uh, even if this satellite itself is just a backup right now, that's really just helping out the people in Alaska with their direct TV. <laughs> so would this be, since you said that there are three of them, and this is clearly for a northern latitude, is this in... What is it? A we just talked about it last week. A tundra, or a lightning, or a a Molnia oh, orbit. One no, of the no, two. I can't, I can't remember which. Right, right. So, so in this case, it's it's just a straight up uh, geosynchronous. Okay. Uh, one. It's at the one thirty nine. I think uh, one thirty nine west zone. And so, okay. So it's yeah. just highly inclined, but no uh, eccentricity there, mm-hmm. or very, very little. Okay. Right. And that it's not inclined relative to the Earth, but it's re- it's inclined relative to the ecliptic plane, which is kind of why. There's a bit of a time-sensitive issue <laughs> to this. Yeah, we'll get into that in a second, huh? Yeah. And also, just to clarify, because Ben said it might be exploding, you mean that it might explode, not that it might be currently. Just because <laughs> that, that's kind of... Because <laughs> that just... Because sure. that, Yeah, I mean, that just sounded weird. And I was like, people might think that it's in the process of exploding, but it's totally not. <laughs> but it could happen. Yeah, good catch. <laughs> just a small little yeah, correction there. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess to kind of summarize the issue... Uh, uh, something happened to the battery. They don't know what it was. Oh, we don't know what it was. I, I thought that it was a FOD strike, but I guess it's... That's we don't about as good a guess as I can tell. But at least the, the, okay. the officials are saying that they, they won't... They haven't disclosed what it, the anomaly, what caused the anomaly. So, yeah. But, I mean, that's, you know, that makes sense. As far as uh, things that can happen to it over a 14-year period, a FOD strike kind of meets all of the... Uh, how do I want to say this? <laughs> it kind of uh, fulfills all the evidence that we know about already. Yeah. So uh, the time sensitivity comes from the fact that after this, apparently it's 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 difficult to just um, shut off all the batteries on a spacecraft. Uh, they usually don't give you that uh, capability because then you might accidentally <laughs> shut off all the 
batteries. And uh, the way this uh, one is kind of set up is that they can't uh, isolate it and turn it off. So uh, they're kind of all or nothing when it comes to the, uh, uh, the batteries. So they have uh, tried to switch it off. So it's not in the process of building charge and potentially uh, exploding in the future. <laughs> uh, but that means, right, they still need to, to control the satellite. So they're running entirely on uh, solar panels. But the problem is, is that if you envision a geosynchronous satellite, right, it's hovering over a point above the equator. And so as the Earth spins, it spins with the Earth. And so during the equinoxes, when the Earth is neither tilted towards nor away from the sun, that necessarily is going to have to pass through the Earth's shadow. And uh, in reality, it gets inclined enough to go into uh, what's called an eclipse season well before the equinox. So we've got our equinox, uh, the spring one coming up, or rather I should say the March one because spring is northern hemisphere bias. So the March one's coming up March 22nd-ish or 20th, somewhere in that range. And so uh, the season is about 44 days long, 22 days before and 22 days after the equinoxes, which means basically at the end of February is when it's going to start dipping in at first just a you know a minute a couple minutes at a time but it's going to increasingly spend more and more time in the earth's shadow at which point apparently they can't avoid building charge on the problematic battery which means that they run a very real risk of catastrophic battery failure and the explosion and so the explosion. That, <laughs> so that's the that's the rush that they need to try to uh, go into a, a graveyard orbit, boost up into a graveyard orbit before then. But typically, these satellites need to be passivated by dumping all their fuel uh, and discharging the batteries uh, before you do that. Because having fuel just sitting on board your spacecraft yeah. uh, and not controlling it, that can be uh, problematic, right? You get a leak and then suddenly you are thrusting in a way you didn't want to. Uh, Freeze-thaw uh, cycles can cause more explosions of a different nature. And uh, there are hypergals on this, and so <laughs> it's uh, it's an issue. And so passivating, uh, from what I read, typically takes a few months. So the DirecTV folks are saying that they could only vent a nominal amount of the 75 kilograms of bipropellant still on board before it enters the eclipse season and they risk the uh, explosion. So they're kind of have a, I guess this qualifies as a catch-22, kind of a no-win situation mm -hmm. here, or at least no way to make uh, things completely safe. And it's not feasible to, because I guess this would defeat the purpose of putting it first in the graveyard orbit, then passivating it, because it would still be, you know, charged up or like charging because it might still be falling into the Earth's shadow. Is that the problem? Because I don't see why they can't just do it later. So just like go ahead and move first, mm -hmm. then take care of all that. But they want to do all this before they even start changing the orbit. That's what I, I, I think is the case. I can't confirm that the, mm -hmm. that it necessarily has to go in that order. Yeah, yeah. So so what happens is they, they actually um, normally will move it to the graveyard orbit, dump the fuel and the batteries, and then shut it down. And so mm. what they're what they've got the special uh, special dispensation to do is to move it and immediately shut it down with fuel on board instead of taking all the time to dump the fuel, which which takes enough time that they're worried that they might wind up charging those batteries. Yeah, I mean, 
I don't know if it's so much of a compromise, but what about just going into the graveyard orbit and dumping as much as you can until, you know, the 23rd, (laughs) February 23rd or something like Mm. that. Yeah. But I guess it might not be worth it. The problem is that they have like 70 kilograms of fuel on board and that if they were, you know, if they were to dump as much as they could before shutting it down, they would only get part of it. They couldn't they couldn't vent all of it. Apparently, venting it takes long enough, probably because you want to do a non-propulsive vent. Maybe there's a, you know, a, a rate limit that they have to impose. Um, but they, they're saying that they can't get everything out, and it, mm-hmm. it wouldn't really be enough to dramatically... I'm assuming that it wouldn't be enough to dramatically alter the safety of the vehicle. And so mm-hmm. it's safer to just shut it down and make sure that you can shut it down than to you know, kind of run the risk of, of dumping some of the fuel and then not being able to shut it down properly. That's a great point. Um, Cause remember the, the clip season starts at the end of next month. I mean, it really, mm-hmm. we're coming up against it. Mm-hmm. And I don't suppose it's a good idea to just go ahead and burn as much of that fuel as you can and then use that to get it, you know, from That's that what I was and, thinking, and then right? just like send it on a, you know, hyperbolic trajectory <laughs> somewhere. Yeah. It can go visit Mars or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Well, exactly. I mean, it's it's in a really high orbit. I I would be shocked if seventy kilograms was enough to be able to uh, mm-hmm. to get it into uh, an an escape trajectory. And and also remember, we don't want the Mar the Martians to think that we're bombing them. So, <laughs> True. Um, right. But, but what about I, I think, a graveyard's graveyard orbit? You know. <laughs> yeah. So I I think the key here is we want to get it into an orbit that we already have designated as a graveyard orbit, mm-hmm. instead of putting it into some random orbit, especially if it's going to explode. If it's going to, I mm-hmm. mean, it's not going to explode once they shut it down. Presumably, but you know, mm-hmm. if, if you're going to put this somewhere, you want to put it in an orbit that we've already designated as being full of junk instead of just mm-hmm. something random in order to get rid of more fuel. We're being a little cavalier about just joking, but I just go <laughs> yeah, boost it yeah, yeah. To here, there and everywhere. But you can imagine in an actual boardroom or something, people just be yeah. like, yeah, are you no, kidding me? Go for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's good to joke. It's also good to make it clear that we're joking <laughs> so we don't get emails. Uh, so, I mean, this just seems to be, because this is a, a Boeing satellite, this just seems to be one more story in the saga of what's going on with Boeing, how they're just dropping the ball. It seems mm-hmm. like Boeing drops the ball. That should be a segment. In fact, that might come up a little bit later. Oh, Not that boy. I mean to pick on them, yeah. but, you know, it mm-hmm. seems like I, I see this a lot. So it's at the point now where people are sort of like making fun of Boeing as a company, you know? Like, I don't know yeah. if you've noticed that. Yep. It's just like one thing after another. And I mean, you know, it's, it's beyond its op- its uh, you know its expected lifetime True. and is a backup uh, for the Alaskans and so it's not yeah is it is it already designated as a backup yeah yeah I think apparently it, is, yeah. it has okay. been and there's a really uh, neat uh, site I only recently discovered called satbeams.com and so you can actually see its coverage on different uh, channels there and so you can see uh, a lot of its uh, spot beams are aimed just exactly at alaska essentially same in the chats calling it boeing's anis horribilis <laughs> yep. and, uh, I, I would i would go a little lower brow and say it's uh it's boeing and the terrible horrible no good very bad year yeah i was just gonna say that i if Boeing wasn't dropping the ball in all these other endeavors, then this might be something people would be more willing to cut them a little more slack on. But it doesn't look good. It's just their name in the news again about something malfunctioning again. You know what I mean? Let's do short and sweet. 
Just three. What's the first one, Ben? All right. Firefly suffers an anomaly on the test stand. At the start of a five-second static fire of its four Reaver engines, the first stage of Firefly's Alpha rocket suffered a fire in its test stand engine bay. The test was immediately aborted, and the facility's fire suppression system extinguished the fire. Nonetheless, the roads in the vicinity were closed, and residents within one mile of the site were evacuated for three hours before allowing to return to their homes. The cause of the anomaly is currently under investigation, and Firefly has stated that it will disclose its findings once the investigation is complete. Next up, Solar Orbiter mission's launch date slips by several days. The Atlas V that will launch the joint U.S.-European Solar Orbiter mission was rolled out to its SLC. C41 pad on Tuesday for a planned wet dress rehearsal the next day. However, while prepping the rocket, a cooling duct umbilical unexpectedly disconnected, leading ULA to remove the rocket from the pad for inspections. At the time, officials were worried about the Solar Orbiter mission's launch date slipping, but after verifying that heavy winds were the culprit, a successful wet dress rehearsal took place on Friday, with the mission now scheduled for a February 8th launch. And lastly, Tethers Unlimited's Terminator tape is showing promise. The first of four satellites equipped with Tethers Unlimited's experimental deorbit module is losing altitude at a rate of 24 times faster than it would otherwise. The 71-kilogram Prox-1 nanosat deployed its 70-meter length of conductive tape last September and should deorbit within the next 10 years, rather than the next several hundred years. Later this year, the company's drag racer pair of identical satellites will launch aboard an Electron, demonstrating the difference in deorbit times for tethered and untethered spacecraft. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. And we got some really cool emails to talk about. The first one is just kind of a matter of coincidence that we were asked a question. And now we have an answer thanks to Space News. Yeah, so uh, Andrew wrote in asking about... So we talked about the DARPA Rapid Launch Challenge last week. And Andrew wrote in and said, well, what about Phantom Express? Like, you know, this was a rapid launch thing that that had been going on. And and have we heard anything about it? And so um, I went and kind of did some research. And and basically the answer at, at that time was, well, it's DARPA, it's, you know, a, a, a secret military project. We're probably not going to hear anything about it until uh, until the actual launch. And then literally the next day or the, you know, two days later, um, mm-hmm. Boeing dropped out of the DARPA uh, XS-1 program, which is really bizarre timing. So anyway, the XS-1 program, and I think now it's called XSP, um, Experimental Space Plane, or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe first it was XSP and now it's XS-1. And anyway, this poorly named program uh, started, (laughs) I think, in 2013. And then by 2014, uh, they awarded round one uh, contracts to Boeing, Maston, and Northrop Grumman. And basically, they were uh, charged in phase one to develop uh, a concept in phase two to, you know, finish the design in phase three to actually launch it. And the goal was to get to phase three and have a vehicle that could do 10 flights in 10 days with at least one of those flights going to Mach 10. So, so let's be clear. This is not a uh, a dream chaser kind of space plane. This is a space plane that takes off uh, from the ground and catapults an upper stage into orbit, and then the first stage lands. Uh, so the Phantom Express was Boeing's entry, and after Phase 1, Boeing was the only competitor selected for Phases 2 and 3. So Phantom Express is kind of cool. It's got, it had, 
it's not actually going to fly, but it had an AR-22 engine, which is um, a descendant of the space shuttle main engine. And it was going to launch vertically, uh, fly on a suborbital flight, you know, let it or drop off the upper stage and then come in for a horizontal landing. Um, and it, you know, it's not a small vehicle. It's got a wingspan of 19 meters. Um, so, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, small relative to shuttle. So shuttle's wingspan was, was just over, or was, was almost 24 meters. So, you know, th- this is like, I mean, it, it's, it's a lot of wing to put into a suborbital trajectory, right? But, but we're not talking about a giant airplane. But anyway, it's a really cool concept uh, until you realize that just landing first stages propulsively is an option and a really elegant and quick option. And, you know, if you don't want to do that, we have, you know, Virgin Orbit who can basically do, you know, kind of the same mission profile. They they ha- they need a larger rocket to actually get things into orbit. You know, it's not a, a single stage, upper stage, you need multiple stages. But I don't know. It's interesting that um that Boeing dropped out and that it wasn't DARPA saying, eh, okay, we're, you know, we're not going to progress to to phase three. Hmm. Um but yeah, so you know, it, it had been a couple years of of development or presumed development in complete silence, and and now they dropped out with with no warning to the public. And we were hoping to see a launch from them uh, later in 2020. Um, of course, you know, it's probably it would probably would have slipped if they would have continued. But that was kind of the target that they were looking for was to start uh, doing uh, suborbital flights uh, up to Mach 10. By the way, like these are these are pretty powerful mm-hmm. uh, suborbital flights. So yeah, there you go. Um, really weird timing, a little bit of news in the question, comments, and correction burns, but uh, that all kind of happened uh, this week. This is just one more thing that Boeing, you know, kind of dropped the ball on, huh? So I'll just bring that back. Ah. Again. But that was the, that was the other thing that I was alluding to earlier. But, um, ah. you know, I think it's a good move in, in that because it's not really, you know, just as you were saying, Ben, it's not really needed at this point because this mm-hmm. began development like at a time when this might have been the only option, but now there are much better options on the table. So yeah. mm-hmm. it's just a little bit redundant. Just not worth it for them. They made another email from a listener, Aspen. Thank you for writing in. And Aspen shared a really interesting YouTube video. So this is coming from NASA Spaceflight. So we'll have a a link to the video in the show notes and uh, it's um, footage at full speed and then repeated in slow motion. Uh, they slow it down, but basically it's, it's close up footage of the second stage of the, uh, the in-flight abort Falcon nine hitting the water. And if you watch it, it's really interesting. It, it shows a fireball that ignites above the surface of the water. So Aspen's first thought. And when I looked at it, I agreed was that maybe the second stage actually exploded before it hit the water, which would be a really interesting dynamic because it probably means that there was a pressure wave in front of it. And so it kind of impacted a, a pressure wave sort of impacting the ground effect instead of actually impacting on the water. But watching it again, um, the explosion looks like it happened after there was already a cloud on the surface of the water. And it, it looks like it happens slower than the second stage was actually falling. So this is a tough video because Mm. we don't have a lot of frames before the explosion but i think it's really interesting this suggests to me that the first stage impacted the water uh dispersed its propellants and then something above the water ignited the propellants um so maybe you know a piece of hot metal flying upwards you know or maybe a a piece of hot metal that was trailing behind it who knows Mm. but this i thought this was a really satisfying video to watch to get you know a bit of a bit of close-up detail there. 
And then uh, real quick, I wanted to talk about the second stage. So we're going to have a little bit of mixing here. Andrew uh, from the, the previous email also mentioned that um, the second stage had a dummy Merlin engine. Um, so when we were hearing dummy stage, that's what that's what people were talking about was the engine being a, a mass simulator. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and of course, just like we said, it, it makes a lot more sense to f- have a, a, a real second stage because then you get all of the normal vehicle dynamics that you wouldn't get, mm-hmm. you know, without having fluid slosh and all that. And then, you know, if you have to choose between uh, propellant and water to fill the first stage or to fill the second stage, you might as well do propellant because you already have the feed lines and everything. So Andrew kind of laid all that out again for us and I appreciate it. Um, so then back to Aspen. <laughs> uh, then Aspen continued on to talk about the grid fins from CRS5, which we talked about back in episode 242. It seemed a lot more recent than, uh, <laughs> than almost a month ago. But uh, yeah, so we were talking about the hydraulic fluid running out and so the grid fins failed and david you and i had a discussion um, about how how this seemed more likely to not be that big of an issue during landing because you know the grid fins don't do very much at lower altitudes uh, but Aspen pointed out that actually the the fluid ran out at pretty high altitude and so um, the lateral motion that we see from the first stage is actually the the braking burn trying to get it back on track from being you know, fairly far off course. Um, so yeah, that, that did actually play a a pretty big part. So David, you intuited it correctly. We just, between the two of us, we didn't get down to the root cause. So thank (laughs) you, Espen. And then Espen had one final question, I guess, or concern, which was, uh, the volume levels of our podcast, which is something I've never thought about because I've, this is the first time hearing about it. Yeah. So he was concerned because he said that when he listens to the podcast, it sounds a little bit quieter than most others. And so, uh, I guess what we want to do is ask the other listeners out there, have you experienced a similar phenomenon or is it just him, <laughs> which I hope. Yeah. And and Dennis and I have both taken a look and, and it sounds pretty similar to us. But Espen was in particular saying that our podcast sounds much quieter than Miko. Although, to be fair, uh, Miko does have a, a pretty loud intro music. So this is something that we really want to get right. There aren't you know standards for how loud podcasts should be, and we'd really like to contribute uh, to the overall podcast community and, and try to hit uh, a comparative good level. So we both want to know if you experience a uh, comparative volume dis- difference between our podcasts and other podcasts. But I'm also curious if you guys use podcast players that normalize audio levels. Um, I use Overcast, which I highly recommend. Um, I've even paid for the pro version to not have ads displayed because I really like it. But Overcast does normalization. It actually does smart normalization where it uh, focuses on the voices. Um, It can actually identify what's Mm -hmm. voice and what's music. So Hmm. do you guys uh, normalize? And if you do and if you don't, let us let us know if if you hear a difference. That would be greatly appreciated because I always want the show to sound good. And that's like Mm -hmm. my biggest concern. I'm always afraid that it doesn't. But people have said it sounds good. But if if this is an issue and this is the first time hearing about it, (laughs) then... uh, yeah, we're a little late to correct that, but um, yeah. but I haven't noticed. Yeah. Okay, so let's do this week in spaceflight history now. So what's our clue and who's our winner slash winners? Yeah, no, just one winner. So our clue from last week was taking a selfie, and congratulations to Cy Kyle for correctly guessing. One and only winner. You know that makes me happy. All right, so <laughs> this week in spaceflight history is the 29th of January, 2003. It was the launch of XSS-10. Boy, this is a a bad uh, a bad show for <laughs> for uh, for acronyms yeah so uh, unlike uh, the XS1 program the X 
SS-10 was the first in a series of on-orbit inspection and optical navigation experimental satellites. So it was built by Boeing and it rode along on Navstar 2R8's Delta II launch vehicle. So of course, Navstar, you know, is, is GPS, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so Delta II basically launches as GPS satellite. And then after uh, it released the satellite, it waited until it was back in sunlight and deployed uh, XSS-10. So, uh, boy, I'm not going to say it again. So this satellite had a, a color camera on board, and it demonstrated the ability to navigate uh, in close proximity to the second stage of the Delta II. It had a 24-hour mission because it didn't have uh, solar panels. It actually had uh, just 24 hours worth of battery. And it transmitted uh, live, quote-unquote, inspection footage back home. Obviously, you don't need to inspect a, uh, a second stage that's not going to do anything. So what's interesting is um, I saw different sources saying that it navigated uh, within 100 meters and other sources that it was navigating up to 100 meters away. So I, I don't know exactly which is the case, but uh, basically, you know, it kind of hovered around the second stage. From what I understand, it sort of did some orbits around the second stage to get different angles. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, they wanted to be able to demonstrate they could put uh, a vehicle near another vehicle and get good inspection data back. I, I also saw some indications that the that the camera, uh, it was a panchromatic camera uh, that was on board, was was sort of interesting for 2003. It was one of the one of the first cameras of its type, but I wasn't able to figure out exactly what kind of camera it was. And of course, mm-hmm. we've had panchromatic digital cameras uh, in space um, since like the 90s, but those were all on shuttle, you know, and they were basically consumer cameras. So maybe that's part of the key. And uh, one of the other things that I thought was interesting was that the thrusters on board had uh, heritage from LEAP, the lightweight auto atmospheric projectile, the uh, the satellite interceptor. And if you look at renders of this vehicle, it actually has pretty gigantic lateral thrusters installed. Like they're, they're so big that they really look like you know, like video game style thrusters. But I think the key here is that the vehicle had to maintain position or, or, you know, orientation, I guess. It had to maintain position relative to this uh, second stage. It had to be able to point accurately at the second stage because you don't want to lose... Uh, lose sight of the second stage or you don't know where you are and then it also is using star sensors so i think that it also had to maintain rotational position to be able to point at whatever guide star it was using and so to do all of those things you want fairly powerful you know reaction control thrusters to be able to move laterally as well as as to maintain a, a specific orientation so so yeah i mean it's you know it's kind of a secret air force vehicle so there's not too much information but yeah, kind of a cool little uh, demonstrator. And then, and then of course, it was followed by um, a number of, of different vehicles, including XSS-11, um, which I think uh, visited geostationary orbit and, and navigated around a geostationary satellite. So anyway, that's that's this week in spaceflight history. Cool. And what is the crazy clue for next week? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so excited <laughs> about this. Next week in 1947, the clue is... And hang on with me here. The clue is a woman's place is preparing meals, cleaning windows, and cleaning toilets on the shuttle. Mm. I, I, I'm very excited about, about next week. I got no <laughs> idea. 
<laughs> nope, not, nothing here. Yeah, I mean, some good old-fashioned sexism there, but uh, I'm sure it's a great, I'm sure <laughs> mm -hmm. that there's a great event here. Uh, I can't think of it. So, yeah, that's next week in 1947. A woman's place is preparing meals, cleaning windows, and toilets on the shuttle. Uh, so if you know what that is about, just give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. All right, let's move along to the upcoming spaceflight events. Just want to launch in a couple other things. Our launch of the week will be January 31st. And so this is uh, an electron that will be taking uh, NROL-151, uh, which is a National Reconnaissance Office satellite uh, with a contract award under under the rapid acquisition of a small rocket or RASR program or RAZR. That's how I would say that. And uh, it's also the first um, dedicated launch uh, by the NRO uh, that will take place overseas. Did I even say the name of it? The, the Electron, right, with all their clever names. This one is called <laughs> Birds of a Feather. <laughs> and so the launch takes place on January 31st at uh, 0-hundred hours UTC with a launch window from 0-hundred to 0-400. Oh, and, of course, uh, until Wallops is up and running, we'll be launching out of New Zealand. And so then after that, we have uh, the Cygnus uh, departing the International Space Station. You can watch that on NASA TV. So that happens on Friday the 31st. Coverage begins at 9.15 a.m. Release is scheduled at 9.35 a.m. Eastern Time, of course. And with that, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right. Well, that was rather short. So let's go ahead and deal with the show then. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We will see you next time on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.